Thank you, Keith. Good morning. It's great to be back with the old ball guy, right? <laughs> Let's start the series in a barber shop in Newport, Kentucky. I was in for a haircut, and my barber, Tony, was just real chatty that morning. And he knew what I did, and he said, uh, he said uh, what have you been doing this morning? I said, well, I, I was, actually, I'm writing an article, Tony. And he said, oh, what, what, what are you writing about? And I said, well, I'm writing an article on holiness. And it got real quiet in that barbershop. <laughs> Tony stopped cutting my hair, laid the clippers to his side, walked around and looked at me and said, they don't talk much about holiness in this barbershop. This concern look on his face. What do you think when you think about holiness? Maybe you're one of those that thinks that holiness is just something that, that saintly, gray-haired old ladies can have when they're about 80, 90 years old. Or maybe famous evangelists like a Billy Graham or a famous missionary like Jim Elliott or, or, or Mother Teresa. That's where you sort of land in your mind when you start thinking about holiness. Or worse yet, you, you may sort of land in another direction that it's some of these dour, sour, long-faced people who've been baptized in vinegar and weaned on pickle juice. They just, that's holiness. These, Or maybe you think it's some wild fanatic that handles snakes. I don't know. Holiness has been tainted and tarnished and it's been turned and toyed and played with until most religious people in America hardly even know what it means. But Here's the way I want to frame it for you. Holiness is the central theme of this book. More is said about holiness in this book than anything else. How many believe it's important to be born again or to become a Christian? Let me see your hands. Let's get active. You believe that? How many times will you find the command to be born again in the Bible? How many times? No, no, you're wrong. One time. One time. That's an um, one time. Wow. Pretty important command. And of course, everybody believes in the Great Commission. You believe in the Great Commission? Yeah. Amen? How many times do you find that in the whole New Testament? What? <laughs> one time. One time. That command's only given one time in the New Testament. Now, Those are huge, big deals. But how many times do you think you find the idea, the statement, the command, the character of holiness in the Bible? A lot. Her favorite color is plaid. A lot. Between seven and eight hundred times. It's the central theme of the Bible. As a matter of fact, there's a book called the Holiness Code, the book of Leviticus. I doubt you had devotions there this morning, but that's an amazing book. 14 times in that one book alone, God says, be ye holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And the whole point of the book is, is to teach a group of people who came out of paganism, what holiness is and how to interact with a holy God. 
I'm holy. You need to be holy. Here's how it's going to look. God wants us to be holy. And, and, you know, some people, when they hear that, they say, oh, no, that's why I'm not into it, man. He wants me to be holy. Well, let's frame it like this. How many here are parents? Come on, get your hands up. Aren't you proud of those creatures you brought into this world? How many are parents? Let's see your hands. All right. How many, surely every parent in this room would go to any end, any expense, whatever's necessary to give your children everything they need to be well-developed, honest, decent, obedient kids that grow up and become successful citizens of the world that we live in. You would pay any price to make that happen. Why? Because you know that in pursuing a certain path, there's going to be happiness and joy and blessing and productivity down that road. So as a parent, you do that. You, you, you'll go to every end necessary to make that happen. Well, why do you do that? Because you think you're a good parent? No, that's not why you do it. You do it because you're made in the image of God. And God himself, our heavenly father, has this objective in mind for us. He says, I want you to be the most well-rounded, happiest, joy-filled people in the world. And so to make that happen, he says, I want you to become holy. I want you to be holy because your holiness and your happiness are going to work right alongside each other. God is interested in our holiness so we can be happy, so we can have real happiness and real joy and real blessing. God knows that as you and I conform to his holiness, our greatest ability to be happy are going to be one and the same. And so God wants us to be holy. It's the central theme of scripture. It's what he's actually called us to. You say, how do you know that? Well, number one, I guess we could trace down all seven, 800 passages, but why don't we just pick one? Why not Ephesians chapter one, verse four, because that allows us to go back into time, back into eternity past. You actually get a glimpse of, 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 the, of a Trinitarian conversation that's taking place in eternity to past before the foundation of the world was ever laid, Paul said. God foreordained, God elected, God predestined that you and I would be holy. That says a lot. God wants us to be holy. It's the central theme of this book. As a matter of fact, it's a central theme to every Christian theology in the world. Jaya Packer, one of the greatest Reformed theologians, probably in the last 100 years, said that holiness is in fact the central purpose and primary reason of what the Holy Spirit wants to develop in us. John R.W. Stott, one of the greatest statesmen in the world, he said, to be holy is the primary purpose of every Christian. It crosses all boundaries, all theological landscapes, this call to holiness. And that's exactly what we hear this morning, that call. That call starts in the Old Testament, but it's repeated forcefully in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. Peter said it like this, but as he who has called you is holy. So holiness always flows out of the context of God and character of God. 
You'll also be holy in all your conduct, the way you live your life. Because it's written, be holy, for I am holy. Now, what in the world does that mean for us? Well, when we talk about the holiness of God, it's like a two-sided coin. On one side of that coin, when we're talking about God's holiness, we're talking about his utter uniqueness. There is no one else like him in the whole universe. He is omniscient. <coughs> he is omnipresent. He is omnibenevolent. There's nobody like him, creator of all things. He's completely distinct and separate from everything else. On the other side of that coin, it means that he has moral and ethical perfection. There is not a stain or blot or sin anywhere in his character. So that's the, that's the setting. Be holy for I am holy. The Lord your God am holy. But when we talk about holiness for us, man's holiness... Well, in a theological sense, holiness means renewal in the image of God, the image from which we fell. You and I were created holy in the garden, holy morally, holy in the image of God, morally image God naturally. We were created holy, but we lost that. We fail, we sin, and we lost something. So holiness is the renewal of the image of God in us. That's the big picture word. But when you drill down, holiness means two things. It means I get a new identity. And I get a new character. It means, first of all, I am set apart for God. I'm, I'm, no, I'm no longer a pagan in this present world. I'm no, longer, I'm no longer that, but I am this. I have an entire new identity. I belong to God now. I'm his. He's mine. It also means I have a new character. It means I behave differently than I did before I came to Christ. That concept, those two concepts flow through the biblical language and terminology of what it means for you and I to be holy, at least in a theological sense. But when we start digging a little deeper and we look at it scripturally, you say, I, I want to know what, what just the, I don't want just a bunch of 16-cylinder theological terms. Uh, what, what does it mean right here to be holy? Well, when we go to the Bible to talk about holiness, we have to kind of frame it just a little bit like a, a puzzle. A jigsaw puzzle, it has more than one component. You just can't make a simple statement and, and sort of grasp it all. There's some components when the Bible talks about holiness. And primarily there are four components. And that first component is the idea of separation. It means I am set apart for God to do his will. Set apart. Now, many, many years ago, I can't even remember how many years ago now, Brent Rashinda back there, I, I married those two dumbbells. <laughs> and they've had a wonderful life ever since. But I remember standing there performing their wedding. And the strangest thing, right in the middle of that wedding, right before the vows, Brent said, hey, could you, could you wait just a minute? And he said, uh, he turned to Rashinda and he said, now, you know, I'm pretty well known around here. And I had a lot of friends, especially some girlfriends back in high school. And would you mind if I would have a dinner date with two or three of those girls uh, every few months? Can we make a little addendum to this arrangement? Now, you know, I'm, be I'm being facetious. <laughs> what do you think Rashinda would have said? 
No. No. That's why we call it holy matrimony. It means these two are separated from everybody else for one another. He for her, her for him. And there's nobody else in this arrangement. When the Bible talks about holiness for you and I, it's talking about our devotion, our allegiance is for Christ and Christ alone. No little idols, no little I want this, no little addendums, no, no contracts on the side. No, it's exclusively we belong to him, separated unto him. But not only is it separation unto God, it's separation from some things. From the old way, the old life. I'm a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. My behavior changes. The things I enjoyed and did and, and dabbled with as a pagan, as a sinner, those are behind me now. I have separated myself from them. The weather vane of my heart no longer points toward Sodom and sin and all of those sort of sensual things. It points toward righteousness and holiness and godliness. So it is separated unto God from sin for a purpose. God wants us to be holy. God wants us to be separated unto him. He wants us to be separated from that which is bad and evil and wrong and will not give us happiness whatsoever. But it's all for a purpose. That purpose was articulated in Leviticus. It's repeated in 1 Peter. It's an amazing statement. Peter said it like this to the church. This church, the body, he said, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. A people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. God has a purpose for calling every one of us to be holy men and women of God so that we can be a city set on a hill that cannot be hid, a light that is not stuck under a bushel but stands right up in Nampa and boys in the whole Treasure Valley, the whole area. We shine brightly for God, declaring the excellencies of him who called us out of that darkness. We are these unique people who do that. That carries the idea of separation. It also carries the idea of sanctification. Sanctification is a word you're going to see a lot in the Bible. And sanctification just simply means the process of being made holy. And that's, a, and that's an extended process. And that process begins, of course, the moment you come to Christ. The moment you're converted, the moment you're born again. Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, don't you get it? He said, a man must be born of water and of the spirit. And he was, he was pointing back to the prophecy in Ezekiel where God said, I'm going to take clean water. I'm going to sprinkle on you with clean water. I'm going to wash you. I'm going to clean you. And then I'm going to put my spirit within you. And I'm going to take out that stony heart. And I'm going to put a heart of flesh. And I'm not going to write laws on rocks anymore. I'm going to write my laws in your heart. And I'm going to put my spirit in your heart and your spirit's going to be able to do that. That very moment, God is in the process of sanctifying us, changing us. How in the world does, how in the world does God transform us from a guy who hates the law to loves the law? Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 is one of my favorite descriptions of sin in the Bible. 
The prophet said it like this. He said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. How many of you parents in raising maybe a teenage child that was rebellious and you've poured your heart out to that son or that daughter and you watch them look defiantly right in your eyes and turned and walked away and did what they wanted to do. The Latin word for turn there is the word incurved. It means we have all incurved. We have all turned to do what we want to do. We want to call the shots. We want to be the little God in our life. We want to make the decisions. We want to do what we want to do because we want to do it. That's the core problem of every man and woman born into this world. That incurvature, that bent toward our own way. And God said, I'm going to wash that heart. I'm going to take out that old stony heart. I'm going to put a heart of flesh. And I'm not going to put Ten Commandments on rocks anymore. I'm going to put my law within your heart. And you can say with David, I delight to do thy law. I meditate on thy law day and night. That's the sanctification aspect. The cleansing aspect. But it's both in the New Testament, it's in three tenses. It's in past, present, and future. The moment you are converted, you are initially sanctified. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. All of those Corinthians who were far from perfect and far from uh, exemplary, he said to them, you are sanctified in Christ Jesus. That means they had been called out and set apart for God. But it also is in the present tense. It talks about Hebrews 11, those who are being sanctified. The moment you're converted and begin to walk in the light, there's a lot of new things to learn. Some things have to be put off. Some things have to be put on, Paul said in Ephesians. And as you walk in the light as he is in the light, you stop some of this, you start some of this, you lay that aside, you take this on. It's the behavioral change that's going on. And then it's in the future John chapter 17 verse 3 where Jesus said to his disciples whose all names are written in the Lamb's book of life he said sanctify them through thy truth your word is true it's in the future tense meaning there was more yet to be done in their lives now that's sanctification in a biblical sense but the third component is source how does all this happen? He said, uh, you're talking about change of behavior and doing all that stuff. Do you mean I have to sort of pull myself up by my own bootstraps and I have to say, well, I'm not going to talk bad language anymore. I'm not going to do it. In other words, this militaristic, I'm going to have to do it myself. I'm a man. No. Now, is there a part for you to do? Yes. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. You can't earn your salvation. But grace is not opposed to effort. Paul describes the Christian life like a military, like an Olympian that's going on right now, like someone who's in the Olympics, like someone who's in the military, like a farmer who, who tills the ground and plants the seed. So yes, there's a part that you and I do. We actually partner with God in this. But at the very heart of it, the very source, it's God. 
It's God and God alone. He's the source of all of our holiness. Just because you stop doing something and don't do that, don't do this, well, I must be holy. No, every, holiness, every ounce of holiness you and I have is because we are in him and in him alone. He's the source of all our holiness. That's crucial that we get that. The, the last component is sharing his holiness. It's Christ in you. How does that look? That brings us to our second point this morning, the character of holiness. What does holiness look like? What does holiness look like in a t-shirt? What does holiness look like on the basketball court? What does holiness look like on the golf course? What does holiness look like at the job? What does holiness look like in a mother changing a diaper, standing over a sink, washing dishes? What does holiness look like in real life? Well, the Bible makes that pretty clear. Holiness portrayed to the world can be summed up in one word, Christ-likeness. Holiness is Christ-likeness. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image. Paul told the Roman Christians, he said, you have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that's not some far off time. Paul said that process is starting right here and now. So, holiness is Christ-likeness. You say, you didn't help me one bit by saying that. Holiness is Christ-likeness. How do I look like Christ? Immediately, I know where most people go in their head. They go in their head to these pictures, these images, either verbal or narrative that we see of Christ. Who, he, he has this very solemn, valium-laced temperament look and as if he's never raised his voice and never been surprised and never been shocked. He's just, he's very easy going with a perpetual smile, sort of a semi-smile on his face. We, that's not Christ-likeness. That's somebody's image, picture drawing. We have no idea what his personality was. We don't know if he was type A, type B. We don't, we don't know any of that. So we're not talking about some figmented personality. We're talking about character. The character of Christ. Paul said, let this mind be in you, this disposition, this character of Christ to be in you. That's, that's where we're going. So what does the New Testament tell us about character? Well, friends, we can pull a chair right up. We got a front row seat into the gospels and all the epistles to see what it really looks like to be like Christ. And so there are some things we can actually get our hands on. There are some benchmarks we can literally set up and say, here's what Christ-likeness is like. The first one that shines brighter almost than anything else in the New Testament is that we can be like Christ in his love. Self-giving love. Every mother in this room, if you've, been a, if you've been a real mother, every mother in this room knows what self-giving love is all about. You, you, you laid your life down to bring that little one into the world and you spent the next umpteen years sacrificing your time, your energy, your sleep, giving, pouring everything into someone else. That is self-giving love. 
Every dad in this room know what it, knows what it means to be at the office at 8 o'clock or work that shift or, or put that plow in the ground or drive that nail in a board or whatever it is you do. And doing that over and over and over again for somebody else. That is self-giving love. World War II. Esther Ann Kim is a Korean Christian and Japan is getting ready to invade Korea. And one of the goals of Japan in invading Korea was to take some of the prominent Christians in order to demoralize a Christian nation like Korea. And one of the Christians that they took was Esther Ann Kim. Esther Ann Kim was a dynamic woman and she knew that she would probably be on the list to be captured. And so she prepared herself for being captured by the Koreans. She memorized a hundred chapters of the Bible. She taught her, she disciplined her palate to eat rotten food because that's what she'd get in prison. And after going through all of that, she was eventually captured and they intentionally put her in the, uh, the cell cold, frigid sail with an insane Chinese woman. The Chinese woman wouldn't keep her clothes on. They had two buckets, a five-gallon bucket for water to drink, a five-gallon bucket for waste. And the Chinese woman would turn both buckets over. She would trample her in her own defecation. She, she, she didn't, she, no grooming, no cleaning. She was filthy, insane. Esther Ann Kim prayed this prayer, Lord, How can I love this woman for you today? Let the love of God shine through. Esther Ann Kim began to take her meager rations and share them with the Chinese woman so she'd have more to eat and she would not, she could get out of the stages of starvation. She took her own clothes and wrapped them around her at night, gave her something to put under her head to sleep on and wrapped them around so she'd be warm enough she could actually sleep the night through. And then... To keep her feet warm, Esther Ann would take that woman's defecated, covered feet, hold them up to her bosom, and she would sleep sitting against the wall holding that woman's feet so she could get eight hours of sleep. She spoke softly to her and kindly. And after two weeks of that kind of treatment, the light of reason returned to that Chinese woman. And Esther Ann Kim led her to Christ. Christ-likeness is praying, Lord, who do you want me to love for you today? Could be the lady at the checkout at McDonald's. It could be your coworker. It could be your own spouse. Who do you want me to love for you today? Who do you want me to pour your love into today? Let it flow through me, Lord. That's Christ-likeness. It's love. It's Christ in his incarnation. What does that mean? It means he humbled himself. He thought it not robbery to be equal to God. He laid aside all of that and just humbled himself. And he came down into those disciples who they were so concerned about power. You know, in, in our Western world, we really think power is the guy standing with a red silk tie and an Armani suit by a Gulfstream jet. Buddy, that's power. No. Jesus said power is getting down with a bowl, a pitcher of water, and washing dirty disciples' feet. That's real power. That's real service. 
Christ-likeness is just learning to serve, putting others first, their needs, their concerns. It's his incarnation. It's his mission. As he was sent into the world, you and I are sent into the world. It's learning what obedience. It's learning easy, relaxed obedience. You know, you can get to the place that you're not afraid to hear some new truth from Scripture. Oh, no, you mean I got to do that too? You can get to the place in your spiritual life you rejoice to do his will. That's holiness. That's the process of being sanctified. One of the greatest examples in the New Testament is Mary, the mother of Jesus. If you've watched uh, The Chosen, it may have slipped by you real fast. But she's telling that story and she said, why, I was just a teenager. And it's true. Mary was probably no more than 14 or 15 when the angel visited her and said to her, I want you to be the mother of the Son of God. Do you know what that little girl said to the angel? Here's what she said. She said, let it be to me according to your word. That's holiness. That's Christ-likeness. Let it be to me according to your word, oh God. At the wedding of Cana, when they ran out of wine, remember that? And they came to the, the Mary and she found out about it. She pointed those servants to Jesus and she, this is what she said. You said, just do whatever he tells you. Those two statements that compose less than 20 words encapsulate obedience like nothing else in the whole Bible. Whatever you want, that's what I want to do. If you're a chronicle of a Narnia fan, this is for you. When we obey, a rational creature consciously enacts its creaturely role, reverses the act by which we fail, treads atoms, dance backwards, and returns to the place God wants us to be. That's obedience. That's Christ-likeness. It's living a blameless life. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't say a sinless life. I said a blameless life, and there's a difference. A blameless life is living the kind of life God expects you to live. God wants you to live. A blamelessness. When a thing is as it ought to be, it's blameless. Now, have you, you've been, you came here at 1030, right? Have you sinned since you've been here since 1030? You committed any willful sin? <laughs> Not that I know of. Okay. So, if God can keep you 30 minutes from sinning, can he keep you an hour? If he can keep you an hour, can he keep you two hours? If he can keep you two hours, can he keep you four? You get the point? This utter, almost utter nonsense, I call it, that we hear in popular theology, we have to sin every day, every moment, word, thought, and deed. Well, that ain't even in this book. Here, find it. What is in this book? is that we are no longer the servants to sin. What is in this book that he that practices habitual sin is of the devil? That's what's in this book. What God expects for you and I is that we no longer commit willful, habitual, practical sin. God enables us, in, a, in, in just good old front porch theology, God enables you to behave yourself. Amen? Amen. 
He just does. He enables you to behave yourself. And willful sin can no long, can, will no longer be your master. That's where God wants to take you in all of this. You say, well, what if I, what if I mess up? Well, 1 John 1, 9, 2 John 1, spanks, thanks. <laughs> but how do I live this kind of holy life? Well, that's the last point. The catalyst for holiness is the Holy Spirit. You'll never do it on your own. If we walk in the spirit, Paul said, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. You try it on your own, you're a a dead flop. There was a little boy in his grandfather's living room drawing on the floor. And his grandfather walked up and said, what you drawing? He said, why? Pop, I'm, I'm drawing a picture of God. And his grandfather said, I didn't know anybody knew what he looked like. Little boy said, they will when I'm done drawing him. (laughs) I was on my knees, broken, struggling. And I said, God, what in the world are you doing in my life? Why this now? Why this pain? Why, why, what are you doing? And he said, I'm chiseling the image of Christ in you. And I said, what is it? What difference does it matter? Nobody knows what he looks like. He said, they will when I'm done with you. Someone asked Michelangelo, he said, how in the world you take a block of stone and come out with David? He said, you just get rid of everything that didn't look like David. God is working through the process of sanctification to get rid of everything that doesn't look like Christ. So that you can be like a city set on a hill. A light that cannot be hid. That you can proclaim the excellencies of him. You can be that in your neighborhood, in your shop, in your classroom, wherever you are. People see this unique difference in you. You are set apart. You are his. You are different in your spirit, in your disposition, the way you think. You're you're, you're unique. You're Christian through and through. You say, Brother Avery, that, that's a little bit overwhelming. I get that. But here again, remember, it's not, we're just not left. It's not up to our own efforts. William Temple said it like this. He said, it's no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could, I can't. And it's no good. Showing me a life like Jesus Christ and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could, I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write a play like Shakespeare. And if the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, can come and live in me, then I can live a life like Jesus. And ladies and gentlemen, he's offering every one of us his Holy Spirit to live in us and live through us and live out of us as we partner with him a holy Christ-like life. Would you bow your heads?
Every head bow. And I have one question. How many would say, Brother Avery, Holy Spirit's really been working in my life. And I truly want to pursue a, a godly, holy, Christ-like life. No one's looking but me. But how many would just quietly raise your hand and say, that's me. That's me. That's me. That's beautiful. I see your hands. I see hands everywhere. I see them. We'll get in the harness with him. His yoke is easy. His burden's light. Partner with him through the Holy Spirit. And let him conform you to Christ. Pastor Keith. Thank you so much, Dr. Aver, for sharing with us this morning. I'm convinced, church, that God is doing a work. And the work, the fruit of revival that we'll see is probably the fruit of revival we're going to see as he works in us. And so as we go into this series, I can't wait to see what God has in store. And so, Father, as we leave here today, we know that you can do what we cannot. That holiness without your Holy Spirit is nothing more than a pipe dream. But Lord, because you have given us the Holy Spirit who is guiding us into all truth, you're going to continue to do your work at transforming us into the image of Christ. And we know that one day there's coming a day when you're going to finish that good work that you started, but until then, what we can know is if we're not dead, you're not done. And for the work that you're going to continue to do in and through your church, we want to thank you for this. And we pray this with great anticipation of what is yet to come in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, so good to have you with us today. Don't forget, 4 p.m., Next Steps class. I hope you go challenged, convicted. Let's see what God has in store. We'll see you next week.